Holy Spirit, we do not understand how deep the Father's love is. So by your word, by what I say, by what we think about in these next few minutes, may that knowledge move to our hearts and make us different people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just be, before I preach, I just want to take a family moment here. I've had the chance in the last couple of weeks to see the impact that we as a church are having around the world. On Thursday, I was at the Jubilee Reach Center for their second anniversary, heard a lot of stories about how God has changed lives there. And two weeks ago, I was in Rwanda for the opening for the Center for Champions, and I was there the night that they put those street youth on a bus to go to the center to sleep in a bed for the first time in their lives. All of that is because of you and because of how faithful you are and how generous you are in giving to those projects as well as to what's going on here in the operating budget of the church. And I just want to take a minute. I think a pastor needs to do this every now and then to just say thank you. You guys are making a huge difference. You are a great church. I am the luckiest pastor in America because you guys rock. So thank you. I want to start by asking you a question that's sort of fitting for the east side culture that we live in. When do you feel pressure to impress other people? When do you feel that pressure? Is it with your boss? Is it with your friends, a teacher, someone of the opposite sex? Maybe it's in a situation like a party when people start to talk about their job. And do you ever feel this pressure to impress them with your career or with your achievements or something like that? Where do you feel like you have to earn people's love and respect? Because the truth is we live in a culture where we don't usually feel like we're going to be accepted for just who we are. We feel that we have to earn people's approval. And truth be told, for the most part, we do, don't we? This summer, we're going to be preaching on the book of Galatians in the Bible. And the book of Galatians has basically one point. The point is this. Because of, our, because of Jesus, our relationship with God is the one place where we do not have to earn approval and love. We are unconditionally loved by God. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it's kind of a fun book to read because Paul is really ticked off at this church. I mean, can you hear that just from the very beginning verses that we just read? He's so angry, he skips the customary greeting of the time, which usually included saying things like, I'm thankful for you. He just skips all of that and launches straight into his argument and says, I am astonished at you. And then he says, if anyone preaches a different message than I preached, let them be accursed. Now, what you need to know is that's kind of a wimpy translation of the Greek. A better translation would be, if anyone preaches a different gospel, to hell with them. May they be damned. That's what he's saying. Later on, he says, you foolish Galatians. Now, this is kind of shocking. I mean, Paul is their pastor. Imagine if while I was in Rwanda, I'd written a letter to be read to the whole church on Sunday. Right? And I said, you foolish Belvusians. <laughs> to hell with you. Imagine if I'd written a letter like that. I mean, meetings would be called, emails would be sent, elders would be a Twitter. <laughs> so why is Paul so ticked off? Well, because there's some folks in Galatia who are telling a lie about God. And it's a horrible lie because it's the complete opposite of what God is. And the lie is this. You have to earn God's approval. You have to earn God's love. 
You have to try really, really hard to get God to accept you. You see, they didn't believe that simply putting faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord was enough to forgive your sins. That seemed too easy. So they started adding stuff to the salvation equation. It's the Jesus plus formula for salvation. They said, yeah, you need Jesus to forgive your sins, but then you also have to. And they started adding stuff like avoid eating certain foods and do a lot of religious rituals. And the big one was you got to get circumcised because that was a Jewish tradition. Problem was, since nobody else was circumcised back then, this gave adult males just one more excuse to stay home and watch the game instead of going to church. (laughs) Don't want to go to church today. Don't want to get circumcised. (laughs) You think putting money in the offering is bad. Imagine if that were the requirement. John Orberg talks about how when God made a promise to Noah, he gave him a rainbow as a sign of the promise. Later, when God makes a promise to Abraham, he gives him circumcision. Right? You can kind of see Abraham going, wait a minute, Noah got a rainbow. Can we just have a secret handshake or something? So this circumcision thing was kind of not seeker friendly. So Paul says, you foolish Galatians, why are you doing this? Later on in the letter, he gets so riled up, he says, if you like circumcision so much, why don't you go the whole way and castrate yourselves? Whoa! (laughs) Chill out, Paul. The Bible is not a Victorian tea party. It uses some strong language, and that's because Jesus didn't come to make us nice. He came to make us good, and there's a difference. And the reason Paul is so angry at this lie that we have to earn God's acceptance is that it is a violation of everything Jesus was about. You see, Jesus came to show us the heart of the Father. And the heart of the Father is not, prove to me you're worthy and then maybe I'll accept you. That is not the heart of the Father. The Father's heart is, I love you just as you are and not as you should be. And if you simply accept by faith that Jesus took the penalty for your sins, then you are forgiven, redeemed, the old is gone, the new has come, you are a new creation, you are a child of the King, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and no fast-talking legal guy that comes at the end of the commercial with the fine print to say something like, qualified customers only, must participate in Bible studies and service projects, clean up your language, tithe, and be nice to cats. The formula for salvation is not Jesus plus something else. Any theology that says so comes straight from the pit of hell. Can I be any clearer? The formula for salvation is Jesus. End of sentence, full stop, period, we're done. And the theological word for that is grace. But boy howdy, we human beings do not like grace. That's why for the whole of Christianity... Folks have been saying, yes, Jesus, but also, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. (laughs) One of our elders said this week that she grew up in a really strict church where all she heard was the do's and don'ts of Christianity, mostly the don'ts. And she wondered if Christians got to do anything at all. We don't like the idea of grace. That's part of why I don't think Christianity is a made-up religion. Grace is not something we humans would make up. Our whole culture is about ungrace. Tests come back with the wrong answers circled, not the right ones. Corporations have org charts, so we all know how we rank against everybody else. Airlines make you earn frequent flyer miles. 
and then they take them away from you. The east side culture we live in is full of ungrace. You can see it in our youth who so often feel that if they don't get a perfect score on their SATs, then they're losers. And we all feel this pressure that in order to be accepted, we need to achieve more at work to dazzle the boss or make more money so our friends and neighbors will respect us or lose weight so people will find us attractive. Be better parents. Make sure our kids play every sport, learn four languages before kindergarten. So they can be as happy as we are having to prove their worth to the world every single day of their lives. Because it's working so well for us. Now, there is nothing wrong with striving to be our best if it's an internal motivation that comes from God. But when we feel that we've got to be accepted, that we have to, in order to be accepted, we have to achieve, well, that is destructive. But that's where we live all week long, isn't it? Because truth be told, we don't like grace. We prefer to earn our love and respect. Because that makes us feel like we deserve it. And that feeds our pride. You know, that's part of why I used to love grades when I was in school. I always wanted to get an A+, because that would make me feel superior to other people. And I love to feel superior, don't you? And as sick as it sounds, I think we want there to be grades in heaven. You know, so that we can kind of compare ourselves to everyone else. You know, say to each other, God gave me an A today. What did he give you? Ooh, B minus. Must have been that thing with the IRS a couple of years ago, right? (laughs) Guess you'll have to sit on the inferior side of the galaxy. (laughs) If you ask most Americans, are you going to go to heaven? They'll mostly say yes. And do you know what the number one reason they say yes is? Why? Because I'm a good person. Now, if you ask folks, how good do you have to be to be accepted by a perfect and holy God? Most folks can't answer that. All they know for sure is that wherever the dividing line is between good and bad, it's below them. And they are safely north of the good-bad divide. After college, I worked at a church where there was this one woman who used to come up with all these various ideas on how to punish people that she thought were immoral for whatever reasons. And sometimes it was a petition she wanted me to sign, something she wanted our church to do to punish these people. I used to just get in these fierce arguments with her. I mean, she just made me so mad. You know, and, I, and I'd say to my friends, oh, she's so judgmental, she's so mean, I hope God teaches her a lesson about grace. <laughs> well, the challenge of grace for this woman is that if any one of the people she thought of as immoral came to Jesus, they would be made right with God just like she was. And the challenge of grace for me was that God loved this woman as much as he loved me. And that if in her zeal to create a more moral culture, she erred on the side of judgmentalism, well, then God's grace surely covered her as much as it covered me if I erred on the side of being too lenient. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Which brings me to the second reason we don't like grace, It seems unfair. In the words of the old hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives doesn't seem fair, does it? We worked hard to be good. Shouldn't other people have to work hard to be good too? As I've said to you before, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me, but when it saves a wretch like you, it's not so amazing anymore. (laughs) It's unfair. They don't deserve it. But to quote Clint Eastwood, grace means deserves got nothing to do with it. And thank God, because if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in trouble. 
Because no, no matter how good we are, none of us are good enough to meet the standards of a holy God. Jesus has to bridge the gap. Grace offends us. Frequent flyer miles, that's what we come up with. But grace comes from the heart of the Father. But do you know what God's grace means for us every day of our lives? Do you know what it means? One word, freedom. Absolute freedom. In fact, Paul uses that word 11 times in this short little book of Galatians. Freedom. In the passage that we read today, it says that Jesus came to set us free from this evil age. And part of this evil age is living in a state of ungrace. Where we think that we have to prove ourselves to God and to everybody else. But because Jesus absorbed our sin on the cross, we are now free to live in the Father's presence and just bask in His love without having to prove anything to Him. It's the one place that we can do that. It is the one place we are free from having to perform. In this month's Messenger, I wrote about how I love watching my seven-year-old son play baseball because he likes it so much. He doesn't have to perform for me. He doesn't have to hit a home run or get a double play. I just enjoy watching him enjoy playing baseball. You know, and because at his age, there's no coaches on steroids to create all this performance anxiety. He is just free to enjoy the game without worrying about winning or losing. You know, sort of like the Mariners. (laughs) Sorry. Had to get that one in. That is the kind of freedom we enjoy in the presence of our Father. Do you believe? Do you believe that it gives God pleasure to see you being the person He created you to be? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I don't know if we do. I don't know if we do. Two of the pastors on this staff were in Rwanda with me, Rich Leatherberry and Greg Milliken, and all three of us noticed the same thing, that when it came to preaching... We just felt free of the performance anxiety that most preachers in the United States culture feel. Part of it was that they were so spiritually hungry that they just hung on every word. Well, one day we were visiting a ministry and Rich was informed that he had to preach a sermon that day. And he had about two minutes to prepare. Sort of a nightmare for a Presbyterian pastor, right? Like, wait, I need notes. I need, no, I need commentaries. I can't do this. Well, he got up and he preached this incredibly powerful sermon. I mean, it was just powerful. In part because I think he felt free simply to follow the Holy Spirit's leading rather than kind of agonize over every word. And he was just free. And it looked like he was having fun, too. And I know that the Father was watching Rich do that and smiling, not because of his performance, but because he saw Rich doing what he had designed Rich to do. Do you believe that you make God smile? Do you believe that you don't have to perform for him? You don't have to achieve to please Him. You just have to be who He designed you to be. Do you believe that when you do that, you make Him smile? Do you believe that really? Because everything in our culture says that's not the way it works. But that is the difference between Jesus and every other religion. Because every other religion is spelled D-O, do. You've got to do something to get God to like you. But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Jesus done it all. So we are now free from the pressure to perform or achieve or to prove ourselves. You are free. Now, whenever I preach a sermon like this, someone always says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Mm-mm, there's got to be some fine print somewhere, right? Are you saying we can do anything and if we know Jesus will be forgiven? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Full stop. 
Now, sin wrecks our lives. Sin wrecks our lives. So for our own good, we're going to want to do what God says to do, not to earn people's approval, not to earn God's approval, but so that we can have the abundant life he came to give us for our own sake. It's in our self-interest to obey God. But you see, the order is important here. We don't clean up our acts so we can come to Jesus. We come to Jesus, and when we experience his love, we trust his commands are for our good, so we follow them. The way author Reggie McNeil puts it is, Jesus told his followers to be fishers of men, but we Christians keep thinking that we have to clean the fish before we catch them. No, no, no. No, no, no. Order is very important in the Christian life. First comes Jesus, then out of that relationship comes a changed life. My sophomore year in college, I had a roommate named Tony, and we became great friends. And up to that point, I'd been so shy that I'd never really had a good friend before, so this was a new experience for me. Well, then in my junior year, suddenly I had lots of friends, not just one, but lots of friends, and and they were all these really kind of cool people. And I wanted to be with my cool new friends, so I sort of forgot about Tony. We weren't roommates anymore. I never talked to him, didn't return his phone calls. I was kind of short-tempered with him. Well, this went on for years. But even after I was married, Tony would still try to keep in touch. He'd call every now and then just to see how he's doing, just to see how he could pray for me, which would always make me feel kind of guilty. But I got over it quicker than I should have. Well, years later, after my first wife left me, somehow Tony found out about it and he called me. And he said, I am so sorry to hear what happened to you, Scott. That has got to hurt. I just want you to know that I am praying for you. Well, by this time, I was in the Bay Area, and he was in L.A., and he said, look, why don't you come down for the weekend? We'll watch a baseball game, we'll go to the beach, or go surfing, or whatever, you know, it'll be great. I did not want to go. I'd failed in my first marriage. I was embarrassed. I'd been a jerk to him. And if I were him, all I would have wanted to do is gloat over my failures. So I didn't go. But one week, I just got so depressed, I had to get out of town, so I called him up, and I went down to L.A., One day we're at the beach and he just kind of listened to all the stuff I was going through. He was very sympathetic. He was a great listener. When I was finally done, he just, he said to me this, he said this interesting thing. He said, I got a question. Why did you ditch me all those years ago? But his tone of voice was not angry or accusatory. It was actually compassionate. There's actually compassion in his voice. He was naming the elephant in the room that I wanted to talk about, but I didn't know how to bring it up. He was actually doing me a favor. And he said, you know, for a while that kind of hurt me, but here's the deal, Scott. I don't want to give up on this friendship because there's a lot of good in you. And I'd like to keep hanging out a little bit more if you don't mind. So I asked for his forgiveness. He readily gave it to me, and we had a pretty powerful reconciliation. And that began a whole new era in our friendship, much closer than we'd ever been. You know, I started going to L.A. He'd come to the Bay Area now and then. We'd talk on the phone. We'd help each other through our various women crises that we went through. He supported me in my life at Stanford, being a Christian in a very non-Christian English department. And he was writing a novel, so I'd try to help him by connecting him with people I knew that maybe could help him. And we still keep in touch to this day. For me, it was a profound experience of forgiveness and of being accepted, warts and all. Now, after that, do you think I wanted to treat him like a jerk again? Do you think I wanted to do that again? No way, not on your life. I wanted to hang out with him because it felt pretty good to be accepted just for who I was, not having to prove myself, warts and all. His grace was not an excuse for me to go act badly again. 
His grace gave me freedom from guilt and shame and motivated me to become someone different. And his grace gave me freedom to go back into the friendship. That is the heart of the father. The father says, I love you just as you are, not as you should be. And I also love you enough not to leave you the way I found you. So come on, I'm going to make you a new person. But here's the point. It is love at the beginning. It is love in the middle. And it is love at the end. And it is nothing but love. And when we really believe that, because I don't think we do, but when we really believe that and when God's love sinks deep into our souls, we are free. We are free from having to perform, free from having to achieve to prove our worth, free from fears of rejection if we don't measure up, keep up, move up, clean up, shape up, shine up. Free to become everything that God has created us to be. Free. A couple I know wanted to adopt a child And one day they got a phone call from the hospital about an abandoned baby. There was just one problem. This baby's heart wasn't completely formed and he would need a lot of expensive surgeries to fix it. Well, as they were driving to the hospital, the husband was just praying to God saying, I don't want a baby with a heart problem. I don't I want a normal baby. God, please. No, not this baby. I don't want this. Well, When they got to the hospital, he picked the baby up and suddenly was just filled with all of this love as he was looking into the baby's eyes. And he turned to his wife and he said, this is our son. I want this one. Here's the deal. None of us have a completely formed heart. None of us. But God takes us anyway. He says, this one. I want this one. And he loves us and he changes us and he repairs our wounded souls. Do you battle with guilt that you can't shake? Or have you achieved a lot in terms of status and reputation and prestige, but you're terrified that if you lose that, you lose all the respect of other people? Or do you feel like you have to dazzle the boss or win your spouse's approval or keep impressing your friends with all your achievements? Are you scared to fail? This week, will you constantly remind yourself that the Father loves you just as you are and not as you should be? And will you ask him to make his love real to you? Because everything in our culture says it's not real. So we need the Holy Spirit to help this be real to us. Will you ask him to help you do that? And then will you listen to Jesus who says to you what he says to me? My grace is enough. My death is enough to forgive you. My love is enough to change you. My presence is enough to make you strong. Get close to me and I will set you free. That's what we're going to talk about all summer. Lord Jesus, we believe, but we ask that you help our unbelief because everything in our culture says this is too good to be true. So Holy Spirit, by your power, would you please fill our hearts and fill our souls with a certain knowledge that we are loved in the Father's presence so that we can be like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.